Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome indeed, Gary and Dinami. This is the Paradigm Shift. You're with Ian. Now, what is happening in 2020? It's not a very good start. What with the bushfires everywhere, floods in Indonesia with many lives lost, and now military tit-for-tat between the US and Iran resulting in the tragic death of 176 passengers and crew on a Ukrainian airline. Donald Trump ordered the assassination of the second most important man in Iran, Major General Qasim Soleimani. The US military used drones to kill Soleimani. As hundreds of thousands of people attended his funeral, Iran fired missiles at two US military occupation bases in Iraq. Threats by Trump and reports of US retaliation then resulted in the downing of the Ukrainian airplane. US presence in Iraq is unwanted. So is Australia's presence there. Yet both Trump and Morrison wish to stay there to protect both oil companies and Israel. They have left the country in ruins since the 2003 Iraq war. Its people are destitute. Let's go to a song, Masters of War, by Bob Dylan. I'm your masters of war Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain 
see through the water that runs down my drain. He fastened all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sat back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. He's thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled. Fear to bring children into Do I know But to talk out of turn You might say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned But there's the one thing I know I'm younger than you Even Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When your death takes its toll And I hope that you die And your death will come soon I follow your casket By the pale afternoon And I watch while you're lowered Down to your deathbed Pretty harsh words by Bob Dylan there. That was his song, Masters of War. Today's show on the paradigm shift is about the custodianship of the land and why we have the bushfires that we're having now. Um, These fires are burning in most states at the moment. You'd only have to turn on the radio or television to know the extent of them. Uh, They are the the largest fires ever experienced in this country since colonisation. To understand what is happening on country in 2020 requires us to go back to pre-colonial times and to understand how Aboriginal people managed the land. The colonist and the settler, their custodianship of the land is now in tatters. Some farmers blame the Greens, saying that they need to clear the land to prevent fire. Others say that too much effort is being placed in protection of houses when vast tracts of forest, grasslands and native animals are being destroyed. 
Insurance assessors claim that farmers are allowing sheds to go up. These sheds containing feed and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of machinery, while they put every last effort into saving houses, often old and in various states of disrepair. But we do need to go back and ask ourselves how best to manage the land. Why is our custodianship of it gone so wrong? Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, has done the research and in this talk tells us of another time before colonisation where the land was managed far better by the original inhabitants. Almost no Australians know anything about the Aboriginal civilisation because our educators, emboldened by historians, politicians and the clergy, have refused to mention it for 230 years. Think for a moment about the extent of that fraud. Imagine the excellence of the advertising required to get our most intelligent people in 2017 to believe it. Imagine the organisation required in the publishing industry to fail to mention Aboriginal agriculture, science and diplomacy. Don't blame Pauline Hanson. Don't blame Jeff Blaney and Keith Winshuttle, blame Manning Clark, Gough Whitlam, and every editor of Meandrin and Overland, for they too were guilty of that omission. What omission? Well, let's look at what the explorers reported of the Aboriginal agricultural economy and see if you can remember any priest, parent or professor alluding to it. Lieutenant Gray, in his 1839 exploration of parts of Western Australia so far unseen by Europeans, saw yam gardens over five kilometres wide and extending a distance past the horizon further than he could see, simply because they had been so deeply tilled he could not walk across them. Sir Thomas Mitchell, in the country that is now the Queensland-New South Wales border area, rode through nine miles of stooped grain that his fellows describe as being like an English field of harvest. Isn't that word stook an interesting word when applied to what we thought we knew about Aboriginal history? Isaac Beatty saw the hillsides of Melbourne were terraced in the process of yam production and that the tilth of the soil was so light you could run your fingers through it. Mitchell saw these yam fields stretching as far as he could see near Garryward in the Grampians. He extolled the beauty of these plains, assuming that God had made them so that he could discover them, not once thinking how peculiar it was for the best soil in the country to have almost no trees. This was a managed field of harvest. George Augustus Robinson saw women stretched across these same fields of horticulture in the process of harvesting the tubers. Charles Sturt had his life saved in central Australia when he came upon people who were harvesting a river valley and supplied him with water from their well, roast duck and cake. Both Mitchell and Sturt described the baked goods as the lightest and sweetest they had ever tasted. How many historians have read those comments and yet not one has considered that it would be in the nation's commercial 
and culinary interests to find out the particular grasses from which those flowers were made. How many thought that it would be interesting for our children to learn at school. E.M. Kerr noticed that. As he brought the first vehicle into the plain south of Echuca, his cartwheels turned up bushels of tubers. Once again, some of Australia's best soils were almost bereft of trees. The plains having been horticulturally altered to provide permanent harvests of tubers. Unlike Mitchell's self-indulgent congratulations, Kerr was aware who had produced this productivity and later recognised that it was his sheep that destroyed it. James Kirby is one of the first two Europeans in the country of the Wadi Wadi near Swan Hill. They pass gigantic mounds of bulrushes, kumbungi, stacked up and steaming and wonder about the vast enterprise but never think about the productivity of that plant. Aboriginal people were harvesting the base of the stem as a delicious salad vegetable and making mounds of the leaves to process starch. Just one more source of baking flour. Kirby notices a man fishing on a weir his fellows had built across the river. Well, Kirby assumes with great reluctance that blacks had built it, but only because he knows he is the first white man to see them. The construction of the dam included small apertures at the bottom so that water and fish movements could be controlled. Kirby describes the operation. A black would sit near the opening and just behind him, a rough stick about 10 feet long was stuck in the ground with the thick end down. To the thin end of this rod was attached a line with a noose at the other end. A wooden peg was fixed under the water at the opening to the fence to which this noose was caught. And when the fish made a dart to go through the opening, he was caught by the gills. His force undid the loop from the peg and the spring of the stick threw the fish over the head of the black, who would then in a most lazy manner reach back his hand, undo the fish and set the loop again around the peg. The man refuses to look at Kirby, even though he knows Kirby is watching. Already, the Wadi Wadi have decided correspondence with Europeans is not to their advantage. But this man can't hide his pride in the technique. You could say his manner was insouciant. But how does Kirby explain the operation? He writes, I've often heard of the indolence of the blacks and soon came to the conclusion after watching a black fellow fish in such a lazy way that what I had heard was perfectly true. So weirs and constructions, machinery and productivity, all rendered by Kirby as laziness. Wasn't he describing an operation which would fit neatly into any description of European inventiveness and industry? dream. 
was uh, Roger Knox, or the Black Elvis as he's known, uh, Streets of Tamworth, um, and he's wanting to go back to the dream time, which is pretty much where we're at with Bruce Pascoe. Um, he was uh, giving a talk there at an environmental summit. Uh, just uh, one little correction about Bruce. He, he did uh, say that um, an Ian Kerr was the one that acknowledged the, uh, the, the horticulture that was going on now, he was, of course, talking about my great-great-great-grandfather, which was Edward Micklethwaite Kerr. So he just got the, the names mixed up there momentarily. But um, uh, Bruce is pretty much on song on this, and it's very interesting to hear what he has to say and trying to tie up the, um, the custodianship of the land and its, its failure in post-colonial times uh, and to tie it in with uh, the bushfires. Um, so I think it, it's, um, it's important from his point of view to l look at the technology and methods of Aboriginal people. I noticed this morning the Environment Minister Suzanne Lay actually surprisingly made reference to this in her speech about um, climate change. And um, so it would be interesting to see what um, form that takes if they are going to acknowledge the uh, the original custodianship of the land how they're going to go about funding that and trying to um, correct the kind of farming practices that we've had which has so damaged the landscape over the last 200 odd years but there'll be more on that so just to get a better understanding of what Bruce Pascoe is talking about here's an interview that Andy did with him after the publication of his book, Dark Emu. Now, by the way, for younger people and listening in, Dark Emu, for young people, uh, is an excellently um, pictured book uh, with a lot of the text, um, and it's available in bookstores like independent ones like Avid Reader and um, Riverbend Books. So let's go now to Andy's discussion with Bruce Pascoe to fill in the gaps in that talk. Could you start by introducing yourself? My name is Bruce Pascoe. I'm a Ewan, Panalapana and Bunurong man. Uh, our heritage goes from Tasmania uh, 
to the south coast of New South Wales. You're an author. You've written over your life uh, mostly novels, but uh, quite notably in the last few years you wrote a history book, Dark Emu. What was the inspiration of moving into the, the realm of non-fiction? It was uh, the fact that I couldn't find any Australian histories which described the experience of my own family. And um, so I decided I would have to write a history which talked about how Aboriginal people actually experienced colonialism. As part of this history, it involves digging up, I guess, elements of Aboriginal culture that haven't been covered in history before, some of the, the technology and the agriculture techniques and things like this that were a part of Aboriginal life but have been not recorded by traditional historians. Is that right? That's right. I um, I wrote a book on the contact wars of Australia before Dark Emu called Convincing Ground and the information I was finding out there, while not particularly relevant to the uh, contact wars, were really disturbing me because they were talking about what uh, explorers and um, Australian farming pioneers, so-called pioneers, were witnessing of um, Aboriginal people's land use. And so much of it was a complete culture shock to me. Um, I was ashamed uh, as an Aboriginal person not to have known this. So I was finding out about Aboriginal people uh, tilling land that was so vast it reached to the horizon, uh, stooking and harvesting grain that stooks of which went across country for nine miles. All of these things which just didn't fit with the hunter-gatherer myth that we'd been told by our forefathers and our educators. So I was more or less um, stuck with having to write that book. So you, you said that it was almost by accident you came across this in the accounts of early settlers. Was it difficult finding this information? No, that's the that's the shameful thing. Um, it's all on the public record. Most of the things I've found out, you could walk into your local library and find out because they're in the major explorers' journals. Uh, there were some other things which um, I had to dig a little deeper for, but even if you just read the explorers' journals, that information's there. Uh, the two examples I gave you are in Mitchell and Sturt, and, and the thing that really worried me was that I wasn't the first person to have read these accounts. So other people had read them before me and not considered those facts significant for Australia. Um, I think perhaps my advantage was that I was looking at it from an Aboriginal point of view, so it did interest me anyway. But it's still depressing to think of all those professors that went before me reading those things and not seeing it being of any interest to uh, Australia. You know, our history, as taught to me when I was at school and university, was pretty boring. You know, you get enough of wheat, wool and gold. And, uh, you know, this other information would have been fascinating. And when I, start, when I talk to young Australians about it, between the ages of five and 25, they're fascinated because they didn't know it. It's interesting stuff in its own right. It talks about 
human development that goes back a long, long time, long, longer than any other place on Earth. And naturally, people are interested in it because it talks to them about the human experience, the human history. And um, I'm just glad that we're now starting to have that conversation. You said that for you as an Aboriginal person, you'd never heard this before and it was new information. Is that the case for, for most Aboriginal people across Australia, that these histories are, are lost even to them, or are there some places yeah. that have a memory of... Most people, most Aboriginal people didn't know this stuff because they'd had an Australian education and they'd lived under Australian political rule. So you don't find out these things because the whole myth of the colonisation is against you being able to uh, learn these things. So since I've been speaking about it, though, Aboriginal people have contacted me, um, and that this happened after convincing ground as well, because I I learned a lot about massacres that had never been recorded, and were, including one that's, you know, an hour and a half drive from where I live, which involved members of my own family. And that was very disturbing to know that I was living on a country that had had that experience for my own family was very disturbing. But Aboriginal people started writing to me before and after Dark Emu came out with incredible information about how our people managed the land and how we managed crops and how we managed food production, how we managed food preservation and food storage. And these things you just don't hear about in uh, years one and two at university, you know, and we ought to. It's Australian history and our young people ought to know these things. It shouldn't be hidden from them and it has been deliberately hidden from them. What are the implications for Aboriginal people now learning this information? Well, I'm, I'm very, very impressed by young Australians and I'm very impressed by young Aboriginal Australians too. And these are people who are more likely to be worried about plastics in the ocean, uh, degradation of the sea and degradation of the land and more worried about what we're doing to refugees. So these people, both black and white, are interested in these ideas from a social justice point of view. So it's a refreshing conversation for someone as old as me um, to have this kind of discussion with young Australians because my own generation is pretty hopeless. And, you know, to be cheered up at this end of my life is a great thing.
with gardening, home maintenance, fixing your computer or transport. Introducing Brislets, which stands for Brisbane Local Energy Trading System. Brislets is a network of people who trade goods and services without money. You can spend units straight away and earn units by offering a skill or service of your own. You'll meet friendly people who value trading locally in just about anything. Go to brislets.com and learn how to start trading today. Discount joining fee for subscribers of 4ZZZ. Brislets, sponsor and sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ. You're on the paradigm shift with, and that, and we're on 4ZZZ, FM 102.1, community radio. Please support the station because it's, it's very important that we have an independent voice. Um, that song before the sponsorship spot was by Kerry-Ann Cox and the title is Woman Got No History. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, um, a history that we have that has led to the bushfire crisis, to the uh, climate change crisis, the lack of custodianship of the land, which Bruce Pascoe is trying to inform us about. Um, now, last night, Twiggy Forrest, owner of Fortescue Metals, came out on national television to announce that he would donate $70 million towards the bushfire appeal. So rather than pay workers a decent wage or to properly compensate Aboriginal people for loss of their land through his mining interests, Forrest would rather gift money. We have to ask ourselves, how is the money to be distributed? And is it another tax dodge? Um, now, there's a lot of infrastructure that has been destroyed in these bushfires and surely this money needs to be placed in the hands of local government to assess where the money needs to be spent. Let's go back now to Bruce Pascoe, who's on the ground um, himself as a farmer trying to deal with the climate change situation and what colonisation has meant for his people. You said that it's been deliberately hidden, these ideas. Obviously, uh, it was in the interests of pastoralists and things like that to not say that the, the land had previously been worked by somebody else. What, what do you think are the forces behind this uh, hiding of history? Greed. Land greed. And land greed 
is the thing that has devastated the world. Aboriginal people have been here for 120,000 years, and in that time, we developed a law which everybody would get fed, everybody would have a house, and everybody would take part in the culture, and when they were old, they'd be looked after, and that land war was forbidden. That's the, the culture that, that began, we don't know when, uh, but sometime around 100,000 years ago. And it was picked up by the new generation every year. Every generation readopted this law. And that's incredible because the rest of the world was in chaos and turmoil with one king uh, assassinating another king, um, one queen having another queen's head cut off, all of this kind of rubbish, which is all about greed. It's not about justice. It's not about law, not about looking after the people. It's about ambition. And here we have young Aboriginal people adopting the law that their forefathers set down. And I'm sure that it was done because of the intrinsic fairness. How could you argue with a law which said that everybody would be treated equally? It, it's the longest lived uh, social development on earth and was probably the first where people began to live together and make laws together uh, in an organised way. And Australia doesn't think about these things, but I think it's vital. This is probably our greatest export, the export of generosity and peace. Do you think that Dark Emu uh, contributes to Australia's notion of national identity by shining a light on a bit of our pre-colonial history? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I speak to so many Australians, both black and white, who say the book changed their life. Well, it changed my bloody life too. Um, it's had an enormous impact on me. Um, and not all of it positive because I'm running around like a hairy goat all over the country um, and it's impacted on, on me. But I can't withdraw from this battle. Um, this is a gentle battle, but I can't withdraw from it because it's my responsibility now. And the story came to me out of the ground. It wasn't, didn't come out of my own genius because if it had come out of my own genius, I would have thought of it. I would have challenged the things that my teachers told me, but I didn't because I've got only normal intelligence. But when I started reading these things at the behest of my elders and from an Aboriginal point of view, it changed everything. That's, they're the only two things that are different. And, yeah, sure, people come up to me with tears in their eyes and say the book changed their life. And I say, well, this great land changed both our lives. There has been a, a response. It seems like it's grown steadily in the years since the, the book came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the the notoriety and the influence of the book is that how you felt it developing? Yeah, it's totally word of mouth. The book virtually had no publicity. Uh, it's come out of one of the smaller publishing houses in Australia, an Aboriginal publishing house, which has had trouble getting traction for its books. But this book has been built by word of mouth and a lot of it is due to young people. It's young people who ring me up, who email me, who send the book on to each other um, and they're the promoters of these ideas. Have you seen the dance inspired by the book by Bangara yeah, Dance mate. Company? What did you think of yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, look, I loved that. I loved the whole experience. I loved it 
when Stephen Page said he was going to do it. I couldn't believe that he was going to do it. I didn't know how he was going to do it. We had, you know, quite a few meetings with the dancers and with Stephen and the choreographers and all of that. And they kept on saying to me, what do you think? And I say, well, look, um, you're the dancers, you're the choreographers. I'm a writer, you know. Um, I don't care what you do. Just honour the book. And I know you will because um, every other thing you've ever done. You know, I've, I've seen every Bangara dance. Every time they've honoured the culture and enthralled Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians all around the country and overseas, I knew they'd do a good job. So I was just on a bloody picnic, really. And I took my daughter and granddaughter to see the show. And there was a little bit of free champagne. You know, what's not to like about it? <laughs> Some of the things that I've seen you say imply that you've had some trouble with, I guess, academia about some of the ideas in the book. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I was taken to task by some well-meaning academics who thought that I was trying to pull the wool over Australia, trying to exaggerate Aboriginal performance and achievement. And um, it, it inspired me, actually, because I was on a track and I was writing essays and telling these stories to anyone who would listen. Um, but when I was upbraided and wrapped on the knuckles by Australia's senior academics, um, I thought, righto, now the gloves are off now, um, let's have a go. And so I, I then really devoted myself for five years to the research and so I've got to thank those people because they, they turned it into a much better book than it would have been if I'd been left to my own resources. But they inspired me because I realised how pernicious this inability to read the history had been. They weren't bad people at all. They gave me a really good cup of tea. They gave me a lovely bit of cake. Uh, they were very kind. They weren't, you know, Tony Abbott in any way, um, but they'd had an Australian education just the same education I'd had, but somehow or other they hadn't looked at the, the documents that we'd all read in the same way that I'd looked at them. And I, I had this advantage in that my elders had been disgusted by my ignorance of Australian history, their history, and they had been so patient with me over 20 years. Over 20 years they put up with my stupidity the way I clung to what I'd been taught because I when I was a university graduate I thought I knew everything um, I thought you know I, I felt kind of apologetic for Aboriginal Australia to a certain extent and they just persisted and persisted and eventually the light went on and I could see that I would have to write the history of Australia that they wanted and that my family wanted and told from an Aboriginal point of view so I blame my grandmother because she kept on buying me books when I was a child, made me read, and she was the one who made me go to school because I didn't really like school at all. And um, I did anything to get out of it, including running away with my dog several times. Uh, my grandmother straightened me out.
bookstore specialising in Australian authors and stories, with also a range of medical, nursing and alternative medicine textbooks and many more interesting selections for you to choose from. Come on down to 360 Logan Road at Stones Corner, see www.booksatstones.com.au for more info. Don't forget to flash your 4ZZZ subscriber card for a 10% discount. Books at Stones, a proud sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ. You're on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, Community Radio. Before that, we had No More Boomerang by Maruchi Barambar. Now, that song, the lyrics are from Auntie Kath Walker's famous poem. Auntie Kath, otherwise known as Udru Nunuckle, was a, uh, 
um, a Kwandamuka person who lived on Stradbroke Island for many years, otherwise known as Minjerabar. Now, some people are querying Bruce Pascoe's take on Aboriginal management of the land. And in this context, we're talking about the bushfires, climate change and the, the lack of custodianship of the land. Now, Bruce makes an appeal to all of Australia to honour and respect the land. Bruce talks here about his own attempts to grow native Australian crops. That's grasses, yams, stooks, all kinds of things that were here prior to colonisation. This, let's go back to Andy talking with Bruce Pascoe in this last part of the interview. So since the, the book's come out, I mean, there's been, I suppose, controversy from predictable elements, conservative elements, but has there been much issue around the facts in the book? No. Um, a few people have uh, queried, um, you know, details in the book, like where was stirred exactly on this particular day, things like that. And, I, you know, I, I was actually wrong on, in one of those cases. I, I'd written down the coordinates incorrectly. But um, I know that, you know, the conservative elements have had a go, but I haven't read it. You know, someone said to me the other day, oh, you know, those people had a bit of a crack at you a few years back. Well, I didn't read it, and I'm not going to read it. You know, I'm just not interested in that argument. It's a dead argument. You know, it's done and dusted. Let's get on with being a real country and, um, you know, really honouring our land. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about looking after the land. And we've done our very best to destroy this land. And uh, now's the time for people to come together and really treat the country like it was Australia and not as if it was Kent with all its rain and rich soil. We've got to love our mother and respect her and not be ashamed that she's not as fertile as England, not as fertile as the Great Plains of America. She is who she is, and she provided very, very well for people over the longest period of time on Earth. We've got to respect that. She can do it again. She wants to do it again, as long as we look after and keep her health good because we're trying to destroy the poor old girl. You're a, a writer and a historian, but also in recent years you... You've tried to put some of this into practice and farm some native yams. How's that process yeah. going? Oh, look, it, it, it's going as well as you could expect for a man with no money. Um, I've been trying to get those government departments, you know, whose hearts bleed for Aboriginal people and want Aboriginal people to have jobs and they want them to be off the dole and they want them to do this and want them to do that. And I said, here's a chance to employ Aboriginal people uh, just give us a chance. Well, of course, no money was forthcoming because it was all hot air. It was all heart-on-sleeve stuff and no hand-in-pocket stuff. So we're doing it on our own. Um, I bought a run-down poor old farm and that had been uh, overstocked and abused. And um, gradually I've got some crops planted. I've destocked the place of hard-hoofed animals. And as a result, the country has come back incredibly and... I'm gradually converting it to Australian crops uh, with the help of my son and family, local Aboriginal people. We're, um, we're getting somewhere. It takes a long time. Like just before I spoke to you, you know, I had a water problem. Um, you know, the sort of things you'd 
that happens to you when you, you know, your plumbing's half-assed, you know, because you haven't got any money to do it properly. I will do it properly, but I, you know, when I did it, I didn't have the money to do it. I just needed water in a hurry, and so now's the time to repair what I did before. I'd love to do everything properly once, but, you know, I didn't have the money in those early days, and I still don't have it, but at least I'm, I'm getting somewhere, I suppose. Do you see a potential as a commercial crop of native yams or other things that Aboriginal people had once farmed? Yeah, my oath. Um, we're, we're getting so much interest from bakers and restaurateurs and airlines. They want this food. You know, Australia has changed its mind. It wasn't changed by the 60-year-olds and the 70-year-olds. It was changed by the 30- and 40-year-olds. You know, the people who are now in charge of restaurants and airlines and um, bakeries. They're the people who, you know, for them it's just a no-brainer. Why aren't we growing Australian grains? You know, Australian grains don't produce as heavily as um, wheat and barley and things like that, but their advantage is they're perennial. They sequester carbon in the soil as a result and being Australian, they love Australia. They love the amount of water they get from us they love the fertility of the soil. Um, they can't see anything wrong with Australia. They want to grow here. Whereas wheat, you know, you have to look after it like it's a whinging bomb um, because it is used to luxury. And we bring it over here and the poor old thing has to struggle its guts out and we have to support it with extra fertiliser, extra water. We can't afford that anymore. We've proven that. Um, you know, flogging the country and then pouring on superphosphate is not the way to go with our agriculture. We've got to look after this old girl. And, um, you know, she had these plants. She nurtured these plants. Aboriginal people domesticated these plants, and that's the future. All right. Thanks very much, Bruce. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with? Just look after the country. Um, you know, don't despair. Think of the whales and uh, think of all those long-haired hippies that got such bad press who were absolutely responsible for the return of these whales coming up and down our coast now. Without them and without the opprobrium they survived from older Australians um, and other other nations in the world, uh, without them we would have lost our whales. So there's your inspiration. And uh, all of those long-haired hippies were young. They weren't 60 and 70 year old. The people who did the hard work who put up with the water cannons, who went out to sea in the Southern Oceans and that. They're all young, and I have a hell of a respect for them. All right. Thanks very much, Bruce. Good on you. Develop and flip it on the first settlement. Slave 
My people went to heaven for the hell of it. Wonder why I'm yelling, I'm a middle-aged Brisbane black. Rolling through, spitting facts. Revolution, living that. Woodridge boys is on the map. You know what happened when I started my rap? Uh, started my rap. Send a block off the blacks. That's why I jump on the mic and tell it how it is. For my people that didn't know, my people still live. You don't put ways hip-hop black fella. Green, red, yellow, and black. That's my color. What we still right Babylon up on the run, Rasta man, come for reclaim the crown Burn your holy scene down to the ground Spit fire, take your higher slain, you man by the pound Every time wicked man, I'm get burned It's bust like hollow point, automatic when I I see why you little fucker, we you best to pick your game up Knowledge plus wisdom equals power, get your mind up Now back up and watch me block up your schematic Playtime is over, we locking crackers in the attic If I see him in the street, I'm letting Tony have it, have it These lands would never, yo, you took the sword, just snatch and grab it some mob shit, but watch how we flip it Black man on the rise, but their souls be uplifted We most gifted, most highly elevated The first to ever do it, still we highly underrated How I illustrate it, you got a plasky I think the perfect picture about me Hit you in the perfect spot, now what you got? Black power, black eternity, black mind No mind, hold it down, you're off it, baby G Nah, play, we be speak thickly We have it turned down, baby It's us right here this first nation's land will always be here. That was the... <laughs> it was from a mixtape. Um, I'm not sure who the artists are, but we're still right here. It's certainly the message comes through loud and strong. Uh, just before we go out on our last song, uh, I've just got a community announcement there's a SAC ScoMo rally on this afternoon, Friday the 10th of January, 5pm in King George Square. They want to fund the fireys and they want climate action now. So it's all pretty well on song. They're expecting a big crowd and it's, I suppose, in response to the, the bushfires that have been happening around the country. So that's about it from me. We're going to go out with a song... Air, Water, Land by Ancestress. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, we've got an interesting show coming up next week. We're going to do a book review. Uh, it's of a book called The Hilton Bombing by Imre Salazinski. And we're going to have a an author here, uh, Dr. John Jiggins, who, who wrote a book about the Hilton bombing himself called The Incredible Exploding Man. So that's next week. So we'll see ya. This is Ancestress with Air Water Land. Why are so many problems labeled too hard to solve? There's people starving in our backyards as the days Unfold. And I refuse to lose shape to fit a crooked mold. No excuse, no escape. So they take from my soul. I listen for my ancestors. They're telling me to find the answers. Can't turn away from the land's voice. And once I hear it, I got no choice. Cause there is no sanity inside your humanity. 
Sometimes it feels like nothing's enough to replenish me But I'll fight for the life of generations far ahead of me Cause there are rights that are you and I Humanity's dependency Air, water, land, understand Even the queen's got to breathe The deepest silence I can find in the city grind Riddled with violence I incline Like we're going down a one-way dead end street They mind my sacred land And sleep at night How can't they understand Why my spirit cries I feel they're taking whatever 